Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war here soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming at you hot on a Tuesday night. Scott, we mentioned last week that you know we'd either have you know, uh, good vibes or bad vibes as we came into this podcast. And, and obviously we're having some great vibes right now. We, yeah. And I, I'd say we have both because I think, you know, you probably felt like I did after Sunday, whereas like, Ugh, I don't know how this is going to go. And, and what's funny about this team is you just don't know which group's going to show up on any one particular night. Luckily for us on a Tuesday, it was a great team and a great night, but Sunday, maybe not so much, you know, Saturday good. So, you know, maybe we're doing every other thing, every other game. Who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, you know, time will tell. We got one more uh, as this pod com- podcast comes out, you know, Wednesday. It'll be Wednesday at one o'clock central time. Um, but, you know, we've been a, a 650 or so win percentage on the road and just below 50 50 at home. So, you know, you split it home and maybe take two, take two on the road and we're done would be the, would be the, you know, ideal scenario. And then you hopefully could save your bullets for games one and two, what looks like to be uh, possibly taking on the Texas Rangers in in all Texas ALCS. Well, that is cart before horse. Um, And and I was going to ask you this because I was just going to introduce it to myself because Tim texted me earlier after the Astros got off to a really good start in the first inning. And I was like, I'm not watching. And, and so there was something I discovered last off season, uh, last postseason. Every time I watched them, they lost until the World Series. Uh, the World Series kind of changed that around. So I just stopped watching. I followed it on pitch tracks, which I did today. And, you know, occasionally listen on the radio. But even then, things started to kind of go south when I was listening on the radio. So... Open up the floor to you, Tim. Do you have any superstitions that yeah that, that you adhere to this time of year? Not really for the Astros. You know, I uh, I used to be a lot more superstitious with the team. Uh, 
you know, Texans playoffs, I, I always make a, uh, like a, a crock pot pulled pork. Uh, but it's only good for one round. I learned that. Like you can't make it again the next round and hope for the best. It's a it's a one round only. This this pulled pork will get you through one round and that's it. Uh, with the Rockets, I used to make pizza. Uh, but the Astros are just too many games, and I never really had any superstitions. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm listening to the radio and and things are going well, typically I'll I'll stay with the radio broadcast or um, I don't know. I I really. I can't stay away, Scott. Like one way or the other, I'm going to either listen to Robert Ford or watch the game. And so, you know, if if I was in your scenario where like when I'm watching they're doing bad, I'm at least, you know, throwing the app on and I'm listening to the game because I can't, especially in the playoffs, I can't stay plugged out. Like I've got to know what's going on. So, yeah, the, the most hilarious moment of the last postseason was actually in the last game. We were at a wedding. Uh, so we missed the start of the game. We got back, and my uh, my sister and brother-in-law had gotten an Airbnb. And so, you know, we're sitting there watching YouTube TV, but we're watching it on delay. And so I, all of a sudden, I picked up my phone, and as I told you, it gives me alerts. So it gave me the old alert that Jordan had hit his bomb. And so I've got arms raised, and I'm pumping fists, and they're like, what are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, oh, sorry. You'll see in a minute. <laughs> and they banned me from doing that for the rest of the game, uh, which was fine. So, you know. It's, it's actually funny you say that. I don't know if it's a, a tr- superstition as much as a tradition, um, but during playoff games, my mom and I text each other a lot. Like, we text back and forth, and many times we will just talk, hop on the phone and talk during the game, right? Like, I grew up where every every night at seven oh five, the whole family was in the living room watching the Astros. So to me, like it just seems not natural to talk to my mom during the Astros game about the game. And you know, I stream here in Dallas, and they live in Houston and have you know standard box cable still. So they are always ahead of me. And I mean, it got to the point where I would have my mom pause the TV. And then I'd tell her when to like hit play again. So that way we're back on the same point. Cause then even my dad would take advantage of the fact that like they're ahead and he just randomly starts screaming for no reason, just to mess with me. Um, <laughs> and it just, it just drove me crazy. So I'd be like, if we're going to, if we're going to do this, you've got to pause your TV and I'll tell you when to hit play again. And then we can go from there. So uh, in order to pay off, and, and, and so some of y'all are probably going to be wondering, listening to this episode on a Wednesday, like, why aren't they talking more about the series? We're kind of giving in to my superstition here. Uh, and, and I figured the less we talk, the better things are going to be. But we, we will get to our game balls, you know, for at least game three um, later on in this episode. But one of the things I wanted to bring up, and, and you know, we kind of threw this back and forth yesterday. But if we could add one position player and one pitcher from Astros history, has to have been an Astros draftee or signee, you know, international signee. Uh, so no free agents, no, no Roger Clemens, no guys from a trade. So unfortunately, that takes Jeff Bagwell out of the conversation. So I'm going to give you one position player from any point in their history 
and one pitcher from any point in their history. So we'll start position player. Who who would you love to add to this particular team? You know, it's it's funny. We had this conversation yesterday before Jose Abreu went and had himself a two homer day and and kind of started the avalanche uh, in Minnesota. But but I I was thinking Lance Berkman, and you know, you and I went back and forth, and, and we'll get into um, you know a little bit of, of why your pick is, is a fantastic pick as well. You know, later on in the show, as we talk more about your, your index that you put together, but I was looking for versatility, the type of player that I am bringing in, um, is, is exactly what the Astros were looking for last year when they went and they made the trade, um, for Trey Mancini. They were looking for someone who can play first base who can play left field, and who can DH. And so for that reason, I'm bringing in Lance Berkman, former first-round pick from the University of Rice, um, you know, one of the greatest switch hitters of all time, if you look at power hitting numbers, um, third all-time in, in, in home runs for a, a switch hitter, played a damn good first base when he finally got his opportunity. But you know what was an underrated outfielder? He looked awkward while he did it. Um, but at the end of the day, he got the job done out there, even finding ways to navigate Tal's Hill when that was uh, needed. I mean, the guy played center field for Pete's sake. You know, you want to talk about Bellinger before Bellinger. Um, Lance Berkman would be a fantastic fit on this team. You know, essentially sub out. Uh, you know, a Brayu or an, or an often maligned Michael Brantley, and, and put Lance Berkman in there, and, and I think that's a nice addition. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the center field capabilities too, and so you know, Dusty would probably end up sitting Chas McCormick, which know, of all you those know, guys. I saw a stat on Twitter, Scott, and I think maybe we've been a bit hard on Dusty for how he's used Chaz. Um, you know, since like August, Chaz is like a 247 hitter, uh, or mid August, Chaz is like a 247 hitter, and Dubon's sitting near 300. So, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, Dusty does ride the hot hand. Sometimes maybe he's a little slow to react to what the hot hand is, but he is a guy who, you know, if he sees Dubon's out there making good swings, at least, you know, hindsight. We got Dubon into the game as often as we did when he was swinging a hot bat. So I will I will give that to Dusty. I am throwing a curveball here because uh, I'm taking Bagwell off the table because he was technically a trade with the Red Sox, even though okay, he had That was your pick. You were yeah, me earlier. Well, I did, and then I thought about it, and I was like, well, he didn't play any games for the Red Sox officially, but you know he was a Red Sox draftee. I'm going to go with a guy that neither you or I saw play. Um, I'm going to go with Cesar Cedeno. Uh, and one of the things I think you kind of, and and unfortunately you don't know this firsthand, but you can have no idea how difficult it was to hit in the Astrodome in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, back when they, uh, in the mid 80s, when I started watching, that's when they started to move the fence in a little bit. So I think they moved in, you know, left field about 10 feet because it used to be you had to get it into the seats uh, to have a home run to right or left field uh, back in those days. 
And so, you know, Cesar Cedeno is routinely putting up, you know, 20 home runs, 40, 50 stolen bases in the Astrodome. I want to see what he would do in Minute Maid Park. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of those guys back then. You know, Morgan would be kind of a similar thing. Like if you wanted a DH, I'll win. I think Wynn would be another Wynn interesting would, one. Would have some pop at Minute Maid Park. Win, yeah, Wynn would be interesting. But Sedano C- with that power speed combination, particularly with the 2023 game with the bigger bags, would just uh, be interesting. You know, to I, see. I got another one for you. If we're looking outfield, it seems like you're you're thinking outfielder. Um, what about a prime Hunter Pence? Yeah, played center field when he came up with the team. Yeah, uh, I think you know near three hundred hitter, twenty twenty five homer pop, steal some bat with today's you know as you said today's rules, bigger bags, all that stuff. I think he's good for twenty twenty five steals. Um, he looks goofy as hell while he does everything, but he was a fan favorite, and you know I I have many autographed Hunter Pence piece of memorabilia in the uh, in the case behind me here. Well, and and what I was thinking with Cesar Cedeno and Jimmy Wynn also came up as a center fielder, so that would be a similar pick. Chaz has that ability to play every outfield slot. So if you still wanted Jordan as your DH, Chaz could play left. Um, If you wanted him in a game, particularly if you wanted, like, say, a tough left-handers coming up and you want to bench Brantley because you don't want him facing a lefty, you know, Chaz is available you know, to play that left field, you know, while those guys are in there. Um, I thought about Morgan too, because I, you could put Altuve at DH if you wanted to play Jordan in the left. How about this? Um, sneak, how about this sneaky one? If you want to get real, real sneaky with it, what if you sneak Craig Biggio behind the plate? I thought about him too. And I thought about him in the outfield as well. He was a terrible outfielder. Yeah, he, he was, was, he was, I don't know what his defensive run saved or anything like that was when he played at least a second stint. You know, he made the he made a move between catcher and, and second base and played a little bit there. I don't know about that, but the, the, when we brought Jeff Kent in and they moved him to center field, he was awful. And then they tried to stick him and hide him in left field when they acquired Beltron midseason, and he was still awful. And then Kent didn't stay around another year, and thank God he went back to second base. Yeah, so. I think you know, I think we got a lot of options. You know, I, I do like your Berkman pick, um, especially. What was I it? think for the versatility of him, you know, was he it, could play. I'm trying to remember if it was was it 2007 or 2008 when he went nuts in April and May. Yeah, we had like seven, like, eight homers or so. He had like so, so many straight at bats with a homer, kind of like what Altuve did uh, against the Rangers. He had a similar stretch, and he had like hits and like 12 straight at bats or something like that. Uh, that was 2008, I believe. Because I feel like I, my pick with Cedeno's, I feel like he would be akin to 2004 Beltron in Minute Maid Park uh, with the way he played. Because unfortunately, what happened to him is he had you know some kind of legal troubles and he busted his ankle in, I want to say, 80 or 81. And he was just never the same after that. Um. But now moving to the mound, because I think you had a pick that I think we'd both support, but I'll go with a different pick just to be different. I think you, you go first this time, Scott, because I went, I went first with my position player, and you're going to throw me for a loop again, so I'd rather you do it first. Um, my, I did mention him yesterday, so I'm not, I'm not going uh, curveball on this one. And neither was this pitcher. 
Uh, I'm going with Billy Wagner. Uh, he he had a slider, did not have a curve because he 90, didn't need 91, like, 92 mile an hour slider. He did not need a curveball. Um, and what I loved about you know loved about Wagner and loved about adding him is that you look at this bullpen. The bullpen does not have a dominant lefty. There can be no more other dominant lefties in baseball than Billy Wagner. I don't. I would say we have not had a dominant lefty since Billy Wagner. Well, unless you want to count Wesley Wright. Well, yeah, he was okay, but um, if you want to count like a Wandy Rodriguez in, in the starting rotation, I mean, uh, he had one good like, year, and it was after we sucked. Yeah, but Wagner, you could make you could make a definite argument best lefty reliever ever. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Andrew Miller, I think, would probably have something to say about that, but he wasn't a, really a closer uh, for very long. Uh, he put up some really dominant numbers. I mean, you've got like guys like uh, I think Sparky Lyle was a lefty. Uh, certainly, you got John Franco if you want to talk about longevity. But you know, Wagner, everyday Eddie, yeah, Eddie Gordado is a good you know good lefty, but Wagner. 100 plus heat, 91 mile an hour slider. Good luck, folks. In the ninth I mean, inning, Wagner could stand on the mound and yell, Hey, bitch, fastball. And you still weren't touching it. Like, 100 mile an hour heat was not what it is today, right? Like, starter nowadays, starters will hit 100 in the first or second inning, and everyone's, Oh, oh my God. Like, that didn't happen back then. There were maybe two guys in the whole league that could hit 100 and and only one that did it consistently right like Wagner sat 99 to 101 pretty consistently you had you had guys like John Rocker come in who could every now and then touch 100 until he opened his mouth and got kicked out of the league or you know you had other guys who threw hard but but no one and it was heavy too right yeah Wagner Wagner was not only throwing 99 to 101 miles an hour it was a heavy ball that was blowing up bats that even if you got a piece of it, the odds were like it was it was not going anywhere. If you imagine this bullpen setup, and we were mentioning this earlier today, just you know, for a brief moment. So you got a Brehu and, and Wagner back to back in the eighth and ninth inning, righty and a lefty. You're not hitting either of those two guys. And what that does is it gives you guys like Neris and Presley and, and Maton all who could be, you know, your starters are having trouble in the fourth or fifth inning. You need like a crucial out. You've got plenty of arms to go to at that point. So yeah, imagine, imagine Ryan Presley filling the, filling the Phil Maton role that Dusty uses now as like, anytime you're in a jam, you need somebody to get you out of it. Now you go to Ryan Presley and then your closer's Billy Wagner, as you said, uh, Abreu in the eighth, Naris in the seventh. You can even go, you know, Montero sixth because Graben's not on the on the uh, on the playoff roster with some arm sorters. Or you use Presley in the sixth. But at the end of the day, if you're using Presley as a guy and get you out of a jam anytime, anywhere, I feel pretty good about that. Well, and we know what we know about Presley. He doesn't walk guys. And that's, you know, something when we were watching today's game or we were paying attention to today's game, walks just drive us nuts. And Presley doesn't do that. Okay. Who, who is, who's your guy? 
I thought long and hard about this because, like you, I thought maybe maybe we add something to the bullpen. Um, as maligned as he was uh, at the end of his time here, you know, a, a guy like like Brad Lidge would would be a great addition to this bullpen. But then, you know, I, I really started thinking about you and I have talked so many times about the question marks in the starting rotation outside of Justin Verlander, and you know. Maybe in, to an extent, Fromber as well, but he he did not show up on Sunday. And now Javier pitched his ass off today, you know, got out of some jams. But even now, you know, there's Dusty doesn't know who he's going to turn to in Game Four. It's either Arcidi or or France. And so for that, I would hand the ball to the Wizard of Oz, Roy Oswalt, coming home, give him the tractor. Riding that that World Series tractor into the stadium, Scott, and and delivering a, cr- a crucial Game Four start. I I'd want no one else out there to give me an hour and forty five minute game. You want to talk about a guy who never needed a pitch clock? You should have just asked. You should have brought Roy Oswalt in and asked him how to how to play fast baseball because he would he could have wrote the book. You Roy Oswalt, you book him for a you book him for less than two and a half every time. He he was a fast worker. He had 95 heat when 95 was still, you know, big time heat. And then he had a, a 68 to 71 mile an hour curveball that, you know, his arm action was the exact same. He did not slow his arm down from the fastball to the curveball. It was it was damn near unhittable. Um, I, I still remember a game. He, he gave up a leadoff single and, and then retired the next 27 in order in less than two hours. It was it was it was phenomenal. But Royal Swall, I would love to take him uh, in this rotation. You know, that game is game, what, six, the 2005 ALS, uh, NLCS. Yeah, after the, Lidge, the Lidge, game after the Lidge homer, and they're back in St. Well, Louis. And he's just like, give me the fucking ball, and I'm, I'm just going to stuff it down their throat. And he did. I mean, and he, I think he gave up a couple of runs, but in in the moment – that it was, it was the best performance I've ever seen. Because the thing is, you know what every Houston fan is thinking in that moment. Here we go again. Yep. It's going, oh shit, here it goes. Because we were just up 3-2 on them the previous yeah. year going you to know St. What, Louis. And you know what? That dipshit that, who was the, it was uh, Phil Garner goes with Pete Monroe. In game six, when you could have gone Roger Clements on three days, you could have gone Clements Oswald six seven on three days rest each. Instead, you go Pete fucking Monroe in game six, who got lit up, and then Clements um, on full rest couldn't get the job done in game seven. Yeah, I don't know. And that's that was a tough call back then because, you know, we've seen what has happened to some guys. I don't think I don't think not starting Pete Monroe was a tough call. LMJ, <coughs> excuse me. We've seen what has happened to some people with short rest. So that's you're not you know, wrong. And Strasburg too. You know, if you're if you're thinking, you know, outside of Houston. Um, yeah, and, and mean, so, he, he gave his whole right arm for a World Series ring, and and they got it to their credit. They got it. Uh, but yeah, Oswalt was a guy I was thinking too. Um, you know, a guy who's who, if you're just talking just pure playoff baseball, not any other time, pure playoff baseball. Brandon Backey is another guy 
who, you know, absolute nails in both, you know, the, the NLCS and the World Series. Yeah, he was great. He's always got the autograph picture there of a. My mom yeah. brought my baby and I's newborn picture to a Brandon Backy meet and greet with the World Series trophy and got him to sign a picture of me and my baby for some reason. And she showed up with it and said, Brandon Backy signed, signed your picture. I said, oh, okay, thank you. But yeah, now I have a autograph of Brandon Backy on me and Scotty. Um, he actually That's, used to eat my dad's restaurant. I waited on him right after he had TJ. Uh, and I was so fucking chill about it, Scott. This is what, like the most proudest I've ever been around a celebrity. Took care of him the whole night. Never let on that I knew who I was waiting on. And then like as he's going to leave, I, I held the door open for him and his, his lady friend that was with him. And I said, hey, good luck on the uh, recovery on TJ, Brandon. And, uh, you know, I let it go. So that way he knew that I knew who he was, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. Yeah, so that that would be a that's a moment, absolutely. Um, and and he's a guy that came up big. And and one of the things is that what could is could swing the stick too. If you want someone to come oh, yeah. up and give you, a, I was at the game where he hit his first home run. It was a Oppo Taco to right field. He was a starting pitcher. I went fucking ape shit because his pitcher just hit a bomb. One of the things that I love about. Playoff baseball. Now, and I sent you a couple, I sent you some Excel spreadsheets. We're going to get to those in a second. But one of the things I love in watching sports in general. So the Astros win nine to one on a Tuesday here as you're, as you're listening on Wednesday, hopefully Wednesday morning. There were some tense moments in this game. There were some moments where things could have gone the other way and I'm just thinking purely on the mound, not even with the, at the plate. And things could have gone, and it, it could have gone way south. And I was thinking, you know, watching the Texans and their wins, there were some plays that were made, which if they hadn't been made, you know, and, and that's where performances like backies, really, you cannot, you can, you can belittle it after the fact and say, oh, it's not that such a big deal. But it is a big deal because a lot of these guys that, you know, have never done it before and they're in that moment and the moment isn't too big for them. And that's, you know, that's what I love about playoff baseball is you find out which one of these guys is the moment not too big. Absolutely. And, and, uh, to me, Brandon Backey kind of goes in the uh, maybe like the Jose Orquidy kind of category where. Maybe he doesn't have the best regular season numbers, but you know what? When you needed a big start in a playoff or a playoff type environment, like Arkiti gave you on on Friday night uh, last week against the Diamondbacks, yeah, that's you know that's the guy you want to go to. So, um, man, it's it's exciting. That's a great choice with Backy if you wanted to go that route, and I think he gives you. It gives you a stick off the bench, too. If you wanted a guy who could swing it a little bit, pinch run, pinch hit, uh, you know, he could send him up there to pinch hit for Maldi, things like that. Um, interesting, you know, so we both are fine with basically all the infield. Uh, it seems like minus first base for, for me, and, and then you're going in the outfield, and then one starter, one reliever. Um, let's say you had to add, you know, maybe someone coming off the bench. If you wanted to add a, uh, utility guy, anything like that, Scott, anybody you feel maybe got left off, maybe a Joe, that'd be a good spot for a Joe Morgan. 
uh, something like a Luis, maybe a Luis Gonzalez, someone who could come in late and give you some swings or defensive. Uh, you know, maybe it's even a place for George Springer to come off your bench. I'm trying to think because I don't know that I want Morgan in that role. Um, God rest his soul, but I, I don't know that he's he's taking to the bench all that much. Unfortunately, this is one of those where if we have to follow our rules, it's going to be kind of hard, you know, to come up with that. Um, Because I would have said Bill Spires. Um, But Bill Spires, unfortunately, did not come up as an Astro. Uh, So I'm trying to think. Um, Maybe if you get pre-beaning, maybe a Dickie Thon might get my pick. Because he's a guy that you know, was a great all-around player prior to be uh, to Mike Torres virtually ruining his career. And I think that's a great pick. And I think a guy I, I would love on the bench, you know, because I, I do think I'll go to my grave thinking this uh, Altuve is better than him. But I'll take Craig Bijou on my bench, right? Uh, I could bring him in to, and as an emergency catcher if I want to pinch hit for, for Maldonado early in the game to go to Diaz. Okay, I've got Biggio in case something happens. Uh, yeah, I, I need a pinch runner. You know, Jordan gets gets a base knock late in the game, and I want a little bit more speed on the bases. Okay, I go to Biggio. He can go first to third as good as anybody, and he can play a little bit of left field if I need him. Um, you know, something, God forbid, something happens to Altuve. I've got Craig Biggio on the bench. So I, I think I would take Craig Biggio on the bench. That's also a good pick. It's it's one of those things where you I want you know you want to know if if a, if a starter if a guy particularly a guy is in the Hall of Fame is he going to take to a bench role? I, you know that's that's a hard one. I honestly think if you put Craig Bijou on a lie detector and said prime versus prime is Jose Altuve better than you, I think he'd say yes. I really do. I think so. I, I would agree with that. Um, and I and there's did, nothing wrong with that because I think Altuve, we'll get into some of these numbers here in a moment, Altuve's got a chance to go down as one of the best second basemen to ever play the game by the time his career's done. And this is one of the things where um, you know, I sent you the numbers, so I kind of know what the numbers say. But one of the things that I uh, that I that you know that fascinates me about numbers is I think the difference between what we would call eyewitness testimony, like our memory, yeah, and what the numbers actually are. Because to me, if I, like, if I was just going to go in general, take the Astros out of it, who is the greatest postseason player you've ever seen? In Derek which, Jeter. Derek Jeter or probably David Ortiz. Right? David Ortiz, another go. Manny, Manny Ramirez, one of those three. Yeah, Albert Pujols. Actually has better playoff yeah, numbers, but he had some. Yeah, David, he had some great runs with the Cardinals uh, than David Ortiz. Um, Manny Ramirez, out of all the people, he is the all-time leading playoff home run king for the moment. Not for long. Not yeah, for the moment. Um, but no, is, is Altuve past Springer and Correa? Yeah, Altuve is number two. So Altuve is number two. I knew he was up there. I think Correa is like number three or four. I think he's up there in run scored as well. I think Altuve is up there in run scored, but Jeter's got like a huge lead on him in that department. Um, but you look at the plate appearances. Okay, so suspending, knocking on all kinds of wood here. 
should we advance to at least the LCS, he's going to get close to 500 plate appearances in the playoffs. That would put him, I think, second all-time to Jeter. And just in plate appearances. You know, so, I mean, you're starting to talk, you know, if we're starting to talk um, Altuve, taking the scandal out of it, because I don't know how the scandal is going to affect him, but I don't see any way you keep him out of the Hall of Fame based on what he's already accomplished and what he's done in the postseason just up to this point. I'm with you, but, you know, you sent over – why don't you take a moment to go ahead and explain – how the index works, Scott, because I don't want you to get, I mean, I know you have the book and I don't want to give away too much without, you know, people um, purchasing your work, but, you know, kind of just a general summary of, you know, where are we getting these numbers when you put them together? Um, you know, cause several guys at the top of this list are, are, you know, some older players too. So how are we comparing eras? All right. So, to make this as short and sweet as possible, uh, there's a guy named Jay Jaffe who came up with a formula called JAWS. JAWS is actually, it came out right around the same time as the index. JAWS has been very popular. You can you can find it on baseballreference.com. And so what he did basically is he took baseball references war and he took career value and averaged it together with a seven-year peak. What I've done instead is I've done career value, but I've combined baseball references war, fan graphs war, and Bill James win shares. And I divided the win shares by five. It's going to take a long time to explain why that happens and, and what, what is different about win shares. But basically the whole idea was to look at how different sabermetricians look at each player. And so when you combine those together and you combine a, a peak value element, which I took 10 years, you will start to see players in clumps. Now, what I'll tell people is if, and when I sent this to, uh, to Tim, when I write about it, Johnny Bench is number one on the catcher's list. It doesn't mean Johnny Bench is the greatest catcher of all time necessarily. You can certainly argue that, but I'm not. What that basically is, is that he is the most fit for the Hall of Fame, which is a slightly different answer. And so what I'd like to do then is compare current players and players who are not yet in the Hall of Fame to players who have already been selected for the Hall of Fame, see how similar are they really. So I only I don't only look at the index, I look at offensive numbers, I look at fielding numbers, I look at what happened with the awards voting, and I look at playoff numbers. And so we we consider every element throw it all in together. And that's what the books basically are. And the books, I can go into a little bit more detail as to what, you know, how each formula is different, but I don't want to do that here because that would take too long. And I don't want this to sound like an insurance seminar. So to kind of get us started, the top two names on the list, Rogers Hornsby and Eddie Collins. Eddie Collins, of course, not in the Hall of Fame as one of the, the Black Sox, right? No, he is. He is. Oh, okay. He was not. He was not one of the eight men. You're uh, right. You're right. You're right. Um, you're right. He was on that team though. Uh, and then Rogers Hornsby. They they seem to be a pretty significant gap between them and the the rest of as you said the clump. They're the only guys in your situation who or your system who come above that 600 point mark. 
do you think that they are heads and tails better than the rest of these guys, Scott? Or is that just an error where you could compile stats a little bit more um, as there was such a talent discrepancy across the league? That is a complicated answer, but I'll, I'll, t- I'll say this. War basically compares you with the people you played with. So we're not comparing Rogers Hornsby directly to, say, Craig Biggio or, or Jose Altuve. Uh, what I'll say is, is that, you know, it's a monochrome game back then. He played before the color barrier was broken. So you could definitely claim that um, it was easier to dominate in his time. And I, and I won't disagree. But what I will say is that he is by far the most dominant second baseman ever by, by leaps and bounds. Uh, it's not even close. I mean, the offensive numbers were just stupid. Uh, so one of the numbers that I, I throw out there is something called offensive winning percentage. Basically what that is, is that I have nine guys in my lineup exactly like Rogers Hornsby. And I have average pitching. Go to war. And he had a offensive winning percentage over 800 Ladies and gentlemen, that's 132 wins out of a 162-game schedule with Rogers Hornsby as all nine hitters. Um, that's, just, that's just stupidly dominant. Now, dominant and great, or greatest, two different things. Because, you know, just like I pointed out, the game is different. Tim pointed that same thing out. Game is different. You know, you had 16 teams back then. Uh, you have no black players when Roger Hornsby's playing. Uh, you have, certainly have no players from Latin America. You don't have any players from Japan uh, or anywhere in the, in the uh, Pacific Rim. So is he the greatest second baseman of all time? We can have a debate, but there's no debate over who's the most dominant of all time. It's Roger Hornsby. One of the names on here that was interesting to me, Craig Biggio obviously coming in as the you know, eighth highest point total on your list at 388. Somebody came above was Jackie Robinson, right? And I think Jackie obviously rightly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, um, but also played a lot of different positions too. He wasn't he was primarily a second baseman, but he played some first. He uh, you know could play in the outfield a little bit if you needed him. Um, does that hurt someone like that on this list, Scott, when you look at taking their career as a whole, he had a couple seasons at first base that does that take away from his war numbers, those seasons, or did you include those in the list? Uh, he does the whole career. Cause he only played 10 years. You have to play 10 years to even be eligible for the index and the hall of fame, which is why I chose 10 years. He made his debut at 28 years old, uh, in the major leagues. Um, and what, what is great about baseball reference now, and I don't know if you noticed this, but they have Negro league numbers, uh, yes, now I did included. Know that. um, and so, you know, do yourself a favor and take a look at Josh Gibson. Um, it is just absolutely stupidly ridiculous. So, so actually, Scott, I used to do a podcast. I, I wish I could have finished it, but it was called, um, Ira and Costello, who's on first, and we started at 1919 and made it all the way to like 1936, um, just taking each season episode at by episode, um, and would just do a deep dive on on the numbers of every season, and we would we would look at Negro League stats, we'd look at the Negro League World Series MVP winners, 
uh, all sorts of things across baseball. And so um, it was really interesting to see some of those numbers these guys put up, um, which is why I wonder with someone like Hornsby, right? Like, like you said, is the league a little bit watered down at that point? And, you know, I don't know if you could throw that guy up here against 2023 pitching. Is he going to have the same effectiveness at the plate? No. But is he still going to be a good ball player? Yes. So that's that's where the question comes in, too. Oh, yeah. And this is what I like to call like a sports bar conversation. You know, where you, you know, a couple of guys get a beer and they, oh, what would this? Because you, you have to know Rogers Hornsby would come up and under today's conditions, he would come up, you know, playing select baseball. He would come up, you know, getting the weight training and, and all that kind of good stuff that, you know, that players back in the in the 20s and 30s didn't have. Uh, Rob, with Robinson's case, I don't think playing different positions hurt him nearly as much as just coming up so late because speed was his game. And so by the time he's in his midpoint of his career, he's 33, 34 years old. I mean, most of these guys are on their way down by the time that happens. And the same thing happens to Roy Campanella, uh, a, a catcher, and catchers really particularly uh, I mean, that's a particularly bad position to come up at age 28. So, you know, Robinson, uh, I don't know how much you know about his personal history. He went to UCLA, played football, basketball, baseball, and track Correct. at UCLA. Um, he was in, uh, they used to play a game called the College All-Star Game where, you know, uh, they would do exhibitions against all the NFL teams and usually kick the NFL's team's ass. Um, and so he was on that college all-star game. Of course, he goes off to fight in World War II, uh, representing his country, uh, and then plays really one year in the Negro Leagues, and then goes to Montreal uh, in 1946, previous to that 1947 season. And then, of course, you know, the rest is history. So to me, if anybody wants to argue Robinson is the best second baseman of all time, that's there's actually a compelling argument there, just the number of things that he was able to do well, uh, that really people take for granted. He was really good defensively. He played third base too, um, so I mean he was really good across the board as a player. You know, if you look at uh, particularly if you look like the base running stats and you look at uh, the fielding stats, he was just an all around great player. Which that's what burned Biggio. And it's ironically what's getting Altuve as well, because uh, Altuve is not a good second baseman uh, defensively. Does have a gold glove for whatever reason, but um, he's not he's not a good defensive second baseman. And, and Biggio wasn't either. Would he have been better had he come up as a second baseman? Maybe. You know, would he have been better if he hadn't been thrown out in center field, left field, and, and every other place? Maybe. I don't know. But... That it was, yeah, it was a dreadful, you know, drag on his career. But he just played a really long time. That's why Biggio is so high on the list. Yeah, you're you're not wrong there. Biggio was, he was good. I, I think bef- the, the the time period before Kent got there, he was he was a good second baseman. Um, really, up until when he got his knee blown out. Uh, on that double play that got broken up up the middle in like 2000, I think it was. Um, I think after that, defensively, he definitely took a step back, right? Like he, he's in his 30s coming off a, a pretty significant knee injury. Um, 
but I, I you know, I think Bijou has a gold glove as well uh, at second base. And so I think, especially in the nineties, Bijou played a good second base. It was more in the two thousands after that injury, there was definitely a decline in the defense. Yeah. I don't think and his arm was the big problem. Altuve at least has a better arm than Bijou. Bijou was balloon arm man like i can't believe he was a catcher with that arm he wasn't terrible uh in the 90s you're right but that goal he wasn't a gold glove second baseman i mean that's a that's a and jeter wasn't a gold glove shortstop and no won them no no and 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 that's where you know that was when the award was based on reputation uh because absolutely because you know what if adam ever could have hit 250 he would have been a gold glover well the, the problem is is that the coaches are the ones voting for it and the thing is is that i'm seeing a guy 18 times a year maybe you know if if i'm playing an unbalanced schedule or six times if i'm you know if i'm and there's no way you can know that uh biggio and and i want everybody to do themselves a favor go look at his numbers between I would say 1996 and 1999 and just look at those numbers. In one of those seasons, he was the first player since Tris Speaker to have 50 steals and 50 doubles in the same season. Uh, I want to say that was 97. The doubles uh, is what really sets Biggio apart, right? Because when you look at his career numbers in totality, like, yeah, 3,000 hits is great, but also like 270 career hitter, um, you know, but he is the all-time leader for right-handed he's the all-time right-handed leader for doubles and he was a doubles machine he he was he was fantastic i mean out of the box no one came out of the box like craig biggio in the 90s he was always looking for two and even even his 3000th hit he got thrown out trying to trying to take two and that was just who biggio was he was he was always looking for two and i mean he was the dirty helmet, all of it, man. It was he, the 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 late nineties for Craig Biggio was an unbelievable time. That I, you know, he still had a great career. That knee injury, I'm curious what it did to his to to his career, right? Because he kind of became more of a twenty home run guy. You know, he, he he ditched the high leg kick. He waited back on pitches. Part of that obviously had to do with you know going from the Astrodome to Minute Maid Park, a much more hitter-friendly ballpark, right, where he, as a right-hander, could take advantage of the Crawford boxes. But also, he's an older player coming off a knee injury, and he can't do the same thing speed-wise. So he's going to try and crank 20 20 homers and get 20-25 doubles as well. Yeah, so uh, the funny thing about the second base list, so basically where where the the idea for the books came, and, and there's one basic question that I ask at every position. Who is the best player not in the Hall of Fame? And that's and, and that's where I go in every position because the problem that you have is when you start asking a question, is this player a Hall of Famer? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it, there's a lot of guys. It, the second base list, I think, is a pure example. Is Jeff Kent a Hall of Famer? If, if, if they put him in, it wouldn't upset me but there's guys i think he was a stretch of the the best second baseman in the game at least offensively but i think there are guys that are not in the hall of fame who are better um and i think if you look at that uh if you look at that lou whitaker and bobby gritch are two guys that really should be in the hall of fame 
because they are the best at second base who are not in there. Uh, and Bobby Gritch is one of those guys. Well, you have you have one at the top of this list who I'm not sure if he'll ever get in. Oh, that's Robinson, Cano. Robinson Cano. Yeah, that's he's true. got he's got more than Whitaker, yeah, right? When you look at these true. numbers, that's I don't true. know if I don't know if Cano ever gets in. He's got steroid allegations out the wall. Well, he's got tested twice, positive twice. I mean, right. I, I I don't know. I I think with and the Gritch is one of those guys. I think that um, and one of the 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 things that non-stats people say that, that piss me off is when they talk about, well, I know a Hall of Famer when I see one. No, you don't. No, you don't. And I'll tell you why you don't, because anybody that was not in the city of Houston was like, Jeff Bagwell's not a Hall of Famer. Fuck you. I watched that guy play every damn game he played. There is nobody, and the stats will bear this out, there is nobody who is better at running the bases than Jeff Bagwell. Oh, he was um, elite. He was and, he was a 2020 first baseman. He took first to third better than anybody else in the league. You want to score from first on the double? Jeff Bagwell was your guy. Yeah, and he cut the bag. He, he uh, just an, an efficiency. And now when you look at guys who are not in the Hall of Fame, Keith Hernandez, best offensive first baseman by far uh, in the history of the game. Bagwell might have the title for the best defender of a guy in the Hall of Fame at first base. Um, there's an argument to be made there. Um, I think what, what was surprising to me, Scott, when you said, cause it's, I think Bagwell and, and first base was the first one you sent over to me. Right. Yeah. Um, Bagwell, according to your, you know, according to everything you've put together, is a third ranked third, third ranked first baseman of all time, only behind Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox. You know, and I think a lot of, a large portion of that, obviously his defense does bring that that weighting up but let's not forget he's a shoulder injury and a one bad season away from being 500 homers um you know he as he has stolen bases he hit for average he's an mvp award winner would be a two-time mvp award winner if it wasn't for a strike shortened uh 94 season well no he won the he won in 94 and then he would have won again in 95 if not for a strike shortened season because he was a monster that year well, 95, I don't know if he was so good in 95. There was one year that Chipper Jones won that Bagwell was actually the better player. He actually had more war, um, but they gave it to Chipper Jones. Um, the thing is with Bagwell is Bagwell did everything well, and that's where Bobby Gritch is at. Bobby Gritch obviously is not the hitter that Bagwell was, but Bobby Gritch for a second baseman, he's a guy that would hit about 20 home runs. He would hit you about 270. He'd walk a ton. And he'd steal you, you know, 15, 20 bags. And he was consistently one of the two or three best second basemen in the game. Uh, now, if you look in the 70s, Frank White was a superior defensive second baseman. Uh, Willie Randolph is another guy on your list there that you probably have in front of you. He was a really good defensive second baseman. Um, but nobody really thinks about Bobby Gritch because Bobby Gritch didn't lead the league in anything. And that's kind of where people want to look for that black ink, they call it. Um, Lou Whitaker is kind of a similar guy. You know, Alan Trammell's gotten in, so I don't see why Lou, uh, Lou Whitaker shouldn't be in as well. Um, Kent is an interesting one because Kent is not a very good second baseman. And I've no, told he's terrible defensively. And I told this story before, but um, he was a guy that when he came to Houston, he was telling Bagwell, my goal at the end of this is not to have any friends in baseball. 
Bagwell told him, so far, so good. Um, I mean, if you're looking at Bagwell real quick, Scott, he's got, for a first baseman, he's got two 30-30 seasons. Yeah. And we're going crazy because Acuna did it. He's supposed to be fast. He's an outfielder. He's supposed to be fast. We had a first baseman go 30-30. Yeah. I mean, he was basically, Paul Goldschmidt is a poor man's Jeff Bagwell. Uh, when you when it's all you know it comes set and done. And imagine imagine if he doesn't get hit in the hand two or three times. Yeah, Albert Pujols. Um, he, he's you you can see the numbers for yourself. He's going to come in well ahead of Bagwell. He is going to come in. And right to be a, fair, Pujols was better than yeah Bagwell. Jimmy Jimmy Fox territory. The the commercial campaign I remember, you know, and you probably remember seeing this commercial where they're talking about and I you know remember seeing you know this guy do this, this guy do this, and it was. I remember seeing Albert Pujols do everything. And it's like when he was a Cardinal, that was Albert Pujols. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know what he played? He came up as a third baseman. And then when they went and got Scott Rowland, uh, he played left field for a period for them too because they had Tino Martinez still at first base. And then finally, uh, you know, as they made their World Series run his second time there, he moves over to first base and plays a damn good first base for that team. And you know who was playing right field for them for one of those championships? Lance Berkman, and that one hurt. Well, you know, what's funny about Lance, and, and I was thinking this at the time, and it turned out to be true. You give him one more prime season, he's in the Hall of Fame, I think. Oh, I agree. I mean, if you, like, remember he came out and tried to play for Texas. Like, if he could have just... Well, he went to the World Series with Texas. Well, if he could have thrown out, like, 600 plate appearances... You know, if he doesn't, if he doesn't tear his ACL playing touch football at Second Baptist Community Church and has a couple and has that prime season in Houston in the middle of his career, literally his prime, who knows, right? But yeah, even just you know, uh, that's where I was thinking because we were flirting with the idea of signing him back in I think the mid 2000 teens, right there at the end. Chapman's um, trying to give this one away, Scott. Um. He's got the bases loaded here in the eighth. He, uh, oh man, Araldus doing Araldus things. Well, you know, it, so I don't know if you had any other thoughts about first or second base, the index. You know, this is obviously going to be a lengthy conversation. I'm working on third baseman right now because I'm trying to write these things up uh, for the. Uh, I uh, think you know, just this. based on these numbers, real quick, I do think anybody who does not. If if Miguel Cabrera does not get one hundred percent on the first ballot, whoever voted knows a fucking clown. Oh, I'm gonna say that he's. Yeah, not I'm gonna. so tired. I'm so tired of the. He deserves to wait. All the other bullshit. Oh no! By, by the numbers, he's by your numbers. He's the fifth best first baseman of all time. He's a career three hundred hitter, three thousand hits, last player to win the triple crown. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, and it should be unanimous. Well, this is where you look at you know, and and this is why I send out and and in the book I do this too. Why I do this along multiple tests because the index. The index has its limitations, and one of its and one of the limitations that WAR has is I don't think WAR really deals well with DHs. I mean, you can see where David Ortiz is at, um, and and so that's why I look at offensive numbers in addition to everything else. And so look where Cabrera ranks offensively amongst your you know in, in OPS plus and uh, weighted runs created plus. Uh, offensive winning percentage and some of those numbers 
he ranks better than Pujols because Pujols just held on for so long. You know, I mean, he he languished for a decade in L.A. Um, and, and he had that great final season to get to 700 home runs, but he just was a shell of his former self. And, and Cabrera was too, but for a much shorter period of time. I mean, Cabrera's last two seasons, you know, were throwaways. Well, Pujols' last nine, I mean, are throwaways. Um, but Cabrera, yeah. And he's not going to get 100%. You know it. I, but that's my point. It, I know it, he's not. And I think there should be, realistically, Scott, I think there should be certain players that if you vote no, you lose your vote. Like, well, if, I think, like, 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 I'm sorry if you like, cause Ken Griffey Jr. Didn't even get a hundred percent, right? He was like 99.9. So if how, you voted, if you voted no on Griffey, you lose your fucking vote. And period. how does, and how does Mariano Rivera rate as the first and, you know, as, I don't know if he's still the only, but the first guy to get a hundred percent. Mariano Rivera deserves to be in the hall of fame. Don't get me wrong. But and I agree that this, no one else should vote against him, right? Like, but it shouldn't take that long. But Babe Ruth should have got a hundred percent. Like, who the fuck is voting? Why, the he needs to wait a year. Bullshit has got that mentality. Well, I I hate the old Hall of Fame voters. I, guess, I hate them. I guess you know. I think it's more along the lines. Maybe they disagreed on moral grounds. I I don't know. I I you know you had to go back in time. Here's what I think needs to happen. Number one. If you haven't covered the sport in a decade, why do you have a Hall of Fame vote? Why? Did Look, I tell you about the guy I got into it with over BGO when I had my sports talk show? Yeah, yeah, I think I remember. He was a cartoonist. He cartoonist of Pete Rose moments, and that's how he like he would draw famous Pete Rose stuff for the Cincinnati for the uh, Philadelphia uh, no Cincinnati newspaper, and that's how he got his Hall of Fame vote. Well, the biggest clown. And he said Biggio wasn't a Hall of Famer because all he did was stick his elbow pad out over the plate. The biggest clown in Chronicle history, by far to me, was Jose de Jesus de Guadalamara de Taco de Burrito de Enchilada Ortiz, and however many names I can throw in there. Um, but he, you know, he, he flat out said he moved on. I, I think you want to say he's in St. Louis, but he moved on. He says there, well, I go to a sports bar and I let everybody, you know, all these guys vote and, and I go with their, it's like, no. Uh, John Lopez, now in 610. Last year he had a vote. He voted for Jim Deshays. He voted for Jim Deshays. I'm an Astros fan. I love Jim Deshays. I don't even know how he got on the ballot. But to me, number two, if you turn in a blank ballot, you're done. Yep. You're done. Move. You can't, t- Move you can't on. tell me there's nobody on that ballot who is worth it. Now, what I would do is I would sit there and say my my next rule would be you don't have a limit of 10 players. There's an unlimited number of players you can vote for. Because to me, the whole idea of, well, I like this guy, but I can only vote for 10. No. Because that's to me is the biggest farce of, well, you know, he got 60% this year and he got 80% next year in Zen. He never, he hasn't played a game in six years. Whoever you're talking about. How did he get better? I, I don't know. I mean, crazy, right? Yeah, the idea that you got to campaign for yourself for the Hall of Fame, right? You got to go around kissing asses, shaking babies, and doing the whole thing, right? Like, it's ridiculous. And, 
yeah, the Rangers got out of it. But it's it's ridiculous that you, you've got to do that to, to get yourself from, you know, like you said, that 60% to the 80% because, hey, now, you know, so many guys have moved off the ballot. There's some votes available for me. It's like what's happening with Billy Wagner, right? Like everyone keeps saying next year for Billy, next year for Billy. I'm sorry. If you go look at Billy Wagner's numbers, the guy's a Hall of Famer. As you said, the most dominant left-handed reliever of all time, quite possibly. And we're waiting for these old fucks who don't watch Houston, who never watched Houston baseball, to realize how good Billy Wagner was because his name wasn't Mariano Rivera and his name wasn't Trevor Hoffman, and he pitched at the same time. Oh, sorry, folks. Uh, you have a huge problem with relief pitchers in general uh, because the big problem there is that. You know, everybody looks at saves. Well, you know, saves aren't necessarily that important a number. I mean, Lee Smith had a lot of saves. I don't know how great of a reliever Lee Smith really was. Um, but, and then you start comparing guys like from the 70s and 80s that are throwing two and three inning relief outings versus, you know, the guys now where it's, you know, if you pitch more than an inning, it's a rare occasion. You know, it's, it's just a whole different game. But, you know, the ones that are pissing me off, I think, is particularly the steroids era. Because you have guys in the 60s who popped greenies like they were M&Ms. Who are all, well, they, they cheated. It's like, come on. You know, now I get it in some cases. Like, there's some cases where guys are borderline. You want to wonder, okay, how good really were they? Like I could look at Luis Gonzalez's numbers and if I just, you know, forgot about the fact that he was an obvious steroid user, I could sit there and say, I could see somebody voting for Luis Gonzalez. But to me, when you start looking at guys like, you know, your Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, what are we doing? What are we doing? Not putting them in the Hall of Fame. And another guy, if you want to go, and, and I, I tell you what, I probably hate this guy's guts, but Kurt Schilling, why is he not in the Hall of Fame? I know he's an asshole. I know that. But that's why. Because he's a piece of shit. But why, but why does that matter? Because you've got to kiss up to sports writers. Why is Barry Bonds not in the Hall of Fame? Because yeah. he was an asshole. Jeff Kent, you know, they used to say that Jeff Kent was the only guy that could make a clubhouse lineup behind Barry Bonds. And, and you know, that, that might actually be true. But that's the whole thing is like you look at the past, these things are littered with assholes. Like they were telling the story about how when Billy Martin and Mickey Mantle came and sold, uh, signed autographs at, at uh, uh, Fingers Furniture back in the day and how, you know, both of them basically drank a fifth of scotch, you know, during the course of the whole game and uh, the day and probably were shouting obscenities by the end of it, you know, at, at fans. But Everybody loved Mickey Mantle. Put him in the Hall of Fame. They love Billy Martin as a manager. You put him in the Hall of Fame. Dusty Baker's a Hall of Fame manager. I may not like what he's doing now, but he's a Hall of Fame manager. So what are we doing? You know, the, this is crazy. You're right, Scott. It absolutely is. And, you know, it's they loved that Billy Martin was the lovable drunk, though. Like, that's what... America loved that about him. Like he was like your drunk uncle who was a good baseball manager because he was so outrageous. His antics were out there. He said off the wall shit. He had no filter and he did whatever he wanted. Like he literally got fired from the Rangers because he wanted a song 
played over the the stereo system of the ballpark that the owner no longer wanted played, and he called up from the fucking dugout to the PA box and said, play that fucking song, and then got fired. He started a goddamn fucking riot talking shit about Cleveland. Like He literally talked so much shit about Cleveland that they had to band together with the Indians using their bats like swords to fight off fans working their way to the outfield so they could get into the clubhouse because that's where the entrance was at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. He got fired during an introductory press conference. Now, that may have been a bit of a joke, but it was actually said. You, know, you yeah. can't fire me. I, mean, this, I just took the job. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, but I, 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 we had a couple of different things we wanted to do uh, before we got to everybody's favorite uh, part of this show. But uh, first thing we wanted to do is we wanted to give out game balls for game three. So I'm, I'm actually going to give out, uh, I'm actually going to do a game ball and a delight. You did that one week, you know, where you did the opposite of a scumbag. I'm going to give, I'm going to do a delight. Might surprise you, but I'm going to let you go first. Who, who, who's getting your game ball today? I mean, there's, I feel like the obvious choices are Brady, right? Two bombs um, and set the tone early, right? Because as the, as the visiting team, Dropping a four spot in the first inning was was huge. It was absolutely huge to be able to put that pressure on um, and and give a guy like Javier, who struggled so much, some breathing room. And it allowed him to attack the zone and do what he does best instead of trying to walk the tightrope. So as much as I think there are some other guys who deserve shout outs, I think the game ball itself has to go to to Jose Abreu for this one, and that's a good that's a good call. And what I love about Jose Abreu is that you know he's getting paid nineteen and a half million dollars, and I don't care what he did over the first one sixty two. I mean, he's doing it now, and that's you know he had a key RBI in game one as well. So I mean, that's you know he's. I, you know, they, they do that combined you show thing. up in October, all is forgiven, right? Like, cause he had a great September down the stretch. Jose Abreu yeah. was fantastic. And if you continue it into October, it might be money well spent. Yeah. I, and, and they do that combined award for the ALCS now, where they combine, you know, with the previous round. So I, you know, who knows where, where that whole thing's going and, and I'm not going to even entertain that. My game ball goes to Christian Javier. You just mentioned him. Which I think is where was he at at a sixteen inning scoreless streak or is it just eleven now in the postseason? Uh well I mean he threw let's six six no hit innings. Uh then five today is eleven. Yeah, the no but they also had uh against the ALCS, didn't he also have a scoreless outing? I think I think that sounds right. Yeah. So probably, you know, sixteen now, or seventeen innings. Whitey Ford holds the postseason record, I think. Um thirty plus innings. So that's ridiculous. I don't think, you know, Javier is getting there. And his outing is very similar to Verlander's in game one in the sense that you can sit there and you can claim neither of them were necessarily on top of their games. Uh, Javier is, you know, struggling with control at certain points in the game today. He was getting Uh, squeezed pretty hard, too. Uh, and, and JV was having some, you know, problems with his secondary offerings in game one uh, at different points where he was having difficulties controlling those. But they both were professionals gridded out 
and gave you uh, five innings today, six innings in game one. And the thing is, is that the Astros played two different kinds of games. And, I, and I'm sure you've noticed this. They either get beat up early uh, with their, when their starting pitching doesn't hold. And by then it's, it's usually, and it's like game two. It's just they uh, Fromber got beat up early, and it was really all she wrote. Or they are nails, and the offense eventually goes off. You don't necessarily know when in the game they're going to go off, but you know by the end of the game they, they're they're probably looking at eight, nine, ten runs. The key is getting that you know that good starting pitching performance, and that's why you know for the rest of the series I'm not making any predictions because I don't know what we're going to get. Uh, I don't know who we're going to get tomorrow. So I don't know actually, if there's been any Scott announcements that's been made as of yet. 17 and My a third. My gut tells me Urquidy would be the guy. I would, 16 I would, and a third. Urquidy's the guy I would give the ball to. He's getting the start tomorrow. It got announced. And then, the and then I think France is probably piggybacking with him, uh, if, I, if I'm guessing. If we need it, who knows? If we it need might it, not be needed. He, he, last time out, Orkidi went out and shoved six shutout. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So it, that's and and if that Orkidi shows up, game over. Um, but we don't know if that Orkidi is going to show up, and and that's kind of the whole point. Uh, but I agree with you, Bray. Who today was great. I tell you, over the course of three games. What is Jordan Alvarez's slugging? I was going to take him as my delight. You, uh, you know, he's got. Oh, you know, you got home. You, you got, got three him. homers in the first two games, and he had three doubles today. He has four home runs in the series. So I mean, he homered today too. Yeah, he homered today in the. Uh, the I had to go teach the first tee. I missed the, uh, the so last it, two innings. It was to go up seven to one, and then Abreu hit one right behind him to go nine to one. Um, he's not my delight. Um, so I'm going to let you have uh, Jordan Alvarez as your delight. Because I think in any other scenario, three doubles and a homer's getting your game ball right. Like, but whatever what Abreu did in the first, that homer alone would have given him the game ball for me because it allowed or it allowed Christian Javier to go do what he does. Doesn't it have like like a 1500 slugging percentage in, in in the divisional round or something like that? I mean, it's he's his OPS is over 2000. Um, it's, it's it's insane, and and so my delight, and you, and this might surprise you, is going to be actually Carlos Correa, uh, and here's why. Uh, there's really two reasons why. Number one, he's balling out; he is absolutely balling out. Uh, Tim made the point earlier on a text that. Uh, I think it was the sixth inning would have been a much bigger inning because Altuve hit a you know a sharp ground ball that it was uh, a line drive line drive he that, leaped and grabbed yeah so I mean that that he doesn't get that one it's eight to one at that point you know probably um, and he had the team's only RBI he's their hero from game two he's absolutely and he balled out in their wild card series as well um, and one of the things I loved about it is that he's still sticking up for his buddies in Houston. Whenever, you know, people are starting to sit there and want to, you know, talk trash about it, and he's like, no, you know, they're legitimately good. You know, we're going to have to play our best baseball to beat them. And so, you know, he is to me, and, and, I, and I don't know how you feel about this guy I'm going to bring up, but he's like the anti-Alex Rodriguez. Um, because 
Alex Rodriguez was a guy that just seemed like, I'm going to try to put this persona up for whatever. And he would never... They're, They're both polished, right? They're both polished, but Alex was... He was the ultimate teacher's pet, right? Like he is a he is a kiss ass and a half. Like if you, everything about him is fake, everything about Alex Rodriguez seems fake. Whereas Carlos Correa, Carlos Correa is a is a is a real one, right? And that's why I texted you this earlier. I can't stand the people booing him. No, I can't stand no. it. Can't stand it because I I understand that we are in a playoff series and he's on the other team. If you want to heckle a little bit, give him a hard time, but you don't boo that guy because you know what? He changed this franchise. When Carlos Correa came up in two thousand, came up in two thousand fifteen, we became a playoff contender. We were hovering, we were fading at that point. They bring Correa up, and you know what? Everything changed in this franchise going forward. It wasn't Altuve, it wasn't Springer, it wasn't any of those guys. It wasn't until Correa got here that this thing became legitimate. And he's balled out every moment. Like and he hit those two bombs against Kansas City in that ALDS. Almost, you know, won the um, game. Other than the error, other than the error he yeah. made. But that being said, he, he, there is never a moment in his Houston career where he didn't show up in the playoffs. Well, and and let's and and let's not rewrite history here. The thing is, is that you're booing him for leaving, but why did he leave? The thing is, we didn't is, offer him the money. Exactly, we didn't offer. Crane never made him a competitive offer, and they and and you know what? I I support that decision after the fact, seeing what Jeremy Pena has become. But that's not on Correa. I mean, it's not the same thing as like say Beltron back in two thousand four. You know when. You know, Boris was doing his. You know, I'm I'm going to be a you know jackass deal as an agent. This was, this is pure. We did not offer him a competitive offer because we really Absolutely. didn't want him back. We didn't really want him back, and so we which, were going to. Which makes no sense. And and I mean, at least make him. I I thought it was you know make him the six year, two hundred million dollar offer, something along those lines, right? And you know, looking back at it, hindsight's twenty twenty. You've got. Pena, who doesn't have the same pop that Correa does, um, but he plays a great shortstop. Made a hell of a double play today. That's what I'm saying. He plays a great shortstop. I think defensively you're not missing much. I think you missed the, the, the locker room presence. I think the tenacity of Carlos Correa, he's a coach on the field. If you watch any of those mound meetings where a catcher comes up to talk to the pitcher, Carlos Correa is there every time. And he's not just listening. He's leading the way on these conversations. Because you know what? He knows this Astros team. So if he's he's going to say, hey, let's attack him this way. I'm going to set the defense up because we're going to go for the ground ball. Altuve chases this pitch. Throw this pitch. Well, he was great in 2021 you know, in that moment with Framber. That's 2020. That's 2020. Or was, I thought it was 20. I, I, I'm getting my that years. The, uh, that was the COVID year when when uh, he told Fromper, like, hey, you're our guy. Go get it. Yeah, he's our, he's our guy. And so he's a guy, I tell you what. Um, I remember there used to be a rule in Little League where a winning team got to pick one player, you know, from the losing team to take with them. You know, he, he's obviously the guy in, in Minnesota. And I, and I, what what makes me happy about it is the fact that 
Um, I'm glad he didn't. I mean, I, I'm I'm upset that he wasn't with the Giants. I think most of all, but with the Mets, you know, it, it would have been a huge deal. So yeah, yeah, I see that. But um, I'm glad he's with a small market team because I want to see you know every market get to enjoy the stars of the game, and he and he is coming up big. He wasn't big this year because he's dealing with the plantar fasciitis. But I don't know if it's not hurting him anymore or if he's just decided I'm gutting it out and I'm going to do this. But he's been a delight. He's one of those guys that, especially you notice it during 2021, when they just felt like they could turn it on at any time in the playoffs. Carlos was one of those guys that you just expected to turn it on. Uh, Unfortunately, it never worked out that way, and the Astros lost that World Series to the Braves. But he was just one of those players you expected to to turn it on, and because he has, you know, if you look at his his numbers in the in the postseason, he's a career eight seventy two OPS. He's a two eighty five hitter with eighteen homers, driven in sixty three runs. Uh, I mean, that doesn't even account for his defense, which is, I mean, you look at a guy who's won a platinum glove. I think there's no one better at the position in my lifetime than Carlos Correa. There's been some really good defensive shortstops, but I put him up there with anyone I personally have seen in my lifetime. Yeah, that's, that's a statement because, you know, there's guys like Lindor and uh, people like that. He's better than Lindor. uh, I I mean, you want to come at me with like an Omar Vizquel? I I, I always found him overrated, but, um, but that's the. I mean, that's, when I'm looking at that level of defense, yeah. like put him up there with Ozzy Smith for Pete's sake, right? Oh like man, that's tough. I, well, the thing is, they that, play it differently, Scott. They play the position differently, but they both cover the ground. Oh, he's like, he's got a cannon. He's that's got what an makes edge. him so good because he can. He'll play so fucking deep and get the ball so deep, and then just let it rip at 105 miles an hour. Yeah, he's he, uh, and and he's showed up in the playoffs. So, absolute delight. Okay, now we get to that part of the program where we have some things and some people who are not delightful. Uh, so, I'm going to let Tim off because I think he's got a more personal one this week. It is a little more personal. And you know what, Scott? It may even be a little petty as we talked about it. I don't care. I remember when I was a kid, going on an airplane was was awesome. You got a little TV dinner brought over to you. Some, you know, if you ask nicely, you got the whole can of soda to go with your tiny ass little plastic cup. It was a comfortable seat, plenty of room. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to say it was COVID. Everything has changed. Now there's never an empty seat on a plane ever. God forbid someone's not sitting in that middle seat right next to you. There's no leg room whatsoever. No food. Stupid pretzels. Crappy cookies. Running out of the soda that you want to have. And then to top it all off, it's 2023. And we don't have free internet on planes. They charge $30 on American Airlines for the ability for the high high speed internet to stream videos on the plane. That's after they hit you for like 500 bucks a ticket. 
Then they hit you for 50 bucks to check a bag. Then you're inside the airport held hostas where it's six bucks for a Powerade and nine bucks for a bacon, egg, and cheese bagel. It's fucking outrageous. Flying the 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 United States airline industry is a travesty. Because Scott, I had a, I had a little taste of Amtrak this weekend. Train travels the shit. If we had if we had better train, I would I wouldn't fly anywhere if I could take a train. Train travel is fucking awesome. Instead, we've got just uh, Scott. I kid you not. On the way to Boston, we had the last like the second to last row before the restroom. My wife and I typically like to both have aisle seats next to each other on the aisle because we prefer the leg room. Because we're right by the bathroom, there's a line backed up. So I had someone's ass or crotch in my face for three of the four hours. And and the, the moment, the peace day fucking resistance was when this old woman with what I could only describe as double J breasts has to try and sneak by me. And I swear to God, they went pop, pop. Right across the side of my face. And I got titty slapped by like a 65-year-old woman's breast because there was like a line of people going down one side of the idol and she was trying to sneak by. Like, God forbid I take a nap. They, the airline industry has destroyed, absolutely destroyed travel. They took our money in the pandemic to save the industry. And all they did was fire a bunch of employees, cut back the number of flights, jam every flight full of shit overbook them all, and then offer $50 vouchers for you to take the next flight instead. Okay, so are, are you going to be a fan of the entity? Do you remember that what episode, is, remember that episode oh, of South Park? I don't. You have to remind me. There's so, so many of them. So that's when uh, Mr. Garrison invented a alternative to, uh, to airplane travel. I don't remember that one. You're going to have to look that one up. That, that, yeah, I might is, have to. It, it is a I'm a train guy. I am a train. Scott, the, the the ease of train travel. I don't know why we don't like the, the fact that people fight bullet trains now maddens me even more than it did already. Because if I could hop on a train in Dallas and be in Houston in an hour and a half versus the shit that we do now. Oh yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing? Okay. So the entity, I think the name of the, of the, of the episode is the entity is the first time we get introduced to Kyle's cousin, Kyle. Um, but I, I'm going to tell the, the listening audience here, our story over the course of the, of the summer, because this one has an addendum to it that Tim knows, but nobody else I think on the air knows. So we did an Alaskan cruise. We were flying out of Intercontinental at about, supposed to be flying out about 5 a.m., I think, somewhere around there. And so you, you need to get to the airport like a good hour and a half you know, before your flight, right? So we're waking up early. We're getting there at 3.30. We're on our tram from the parking, you know, where we, we parked the parking spot, five minutes into the tram we get the message on our phone that the flight's been canceled. This is the day that United Airlines, probably the CEO wanted to go find himself a panic room and never come out. Because I want to say like a third of the flights worldwide were canceled. And, and we still, I don't think anybody's gotten, ever gotten a real satisfying reason. I mean, we've heard like weather, we've heard, you know, they had some labor issues. We've heard all kinds of stuff, but 
So we end up driving all the way up to DFW so that we can take Alaskan Air from DFW up to, to Seattle. Now, we made the most of it. We got our daughter a, a college visit at, at, uh, at TCU during that day because we weren't flying out until like late in, late in the afternoon. We're leaving the airport at five in the morning. <laughs> so we've got plenty of time to get up to, uh, to Dallas and Fort Worth. She goes to Canada the next week. Her company exclusively flies United. And I don't know if exclusively, but it seems that way. Their flight, they had gotten to the airport. Their flight, uh, their plane had mechanical issues and it took them forever to cancel that flight. So they had to scramble to fly, you know, another airline. So I'm going to sit there and say, you were lucky, my friend, to actually get on the plane and actually fly. Uh, as compared to, I told my wife that, but still at the same time, I expect more, Scott. Like, I feel like, I feel like we just give the airline industry such a big pass. Like, there are some industries where they take a dump on us and we just go, thank you, sir. May I have another? Like, I, I don't like, – you look at other countries and how they treat travel compared to how we do it in the United States. It's terrible. We, we need to – we need like – we need private – like go, we need government ownership of, of the airline industries is honestly where Ooh. we're at. Like there needs to be – you know, I'm a socialism guy. You know I am. And that's where I'm at. Like there, there needs to be like United States air. Like if you're going to be called American airlines, the United States need to run that shit because what's happening right now is, is awful. Like I, I purposely will not, unless I have to, I won't take a trip where I have to fly. I hate flying. It's, it's not like I'm afraid of it. It's not any other aspect other than it's a shit show. Oh, we're, we're, you know, we bought tickets uh, or reservations to Disney World over New Year's, you know, because that's when Anne's birthday is. And then our birthdays all kind of are clumped in that general time of year. We're driving. Yeah. We're driving. And, and on top of it, how much the, is it going to cost you to rent that car when yeah. you get there? All that well, other we stuff. Never, we've never rented a car in Disney because, you know, they'll, they'll transport. Once you get there, they'll transport you everywhere. But the, the whole thing is. So I remember having pound cake on a, on a flight. I remember, you know, and that was, you know, such a treat. And yeah, I remember the meals, uh, they stopped doing that, you know, pretty early on. Of course, they went to peanuts. And I guess with all the peanut allergies, they decided you can't do peanuts anymore. Um, you know, back in the day when, when Southwest was trying to get more business, they gave you a free bottle of Jack with every, uh, with every, because well, they were trying to become the, the businessman's um, flight from South from from Dallas to Houston. They were going after that crowd, and so they would th- all these business people. They would give them a bottle of Jack for every time that they booked a flight. That's, and these, yeah, that where's that? Been, where's that kind of red carpet treatment? Scott? That's that's uh, that's what I'm talking about. You know, and and you're talking about American Airlines. I, I keep thinking of that uh, South Park episode where uh, Randy they take over the Federal Express because they think it's actually affiliated with the federal government. Oh, U.S. government, what are you going to do without your Federal Express? And then the reporter says, "And are you at all, you know, upset that Federal Express is in no way affiliated with the federal government?" No, come on, guys. <laughs> all right. And um, I got to get to, okay, I've got a very nebulous scumbag this evening. And I, you know, I talked over with Tim before, and I don't know how to label this. But 
I want to preface this by saying, you know, what is going on in the Middle East right now is absolutely horrible. Nobody should have to fear for getting kidnapped or blown up or shot anywhere in the world. I mean, that, that we, we, had a, we and I hate that we have to, you know, make that statement right off the bat. But I think what I've noticed this, and I've already noticed this from, you know, at least one of my colleagues at school, and I'm not going to name him because I'm not that kind of guy, but he, he did one of those Facebook posts of, well, and if you're talking bad about Israel, that's a bad look. Hate to see y'all liberals being anti-Semitic. Ladies and gentlemen, can we get to a point where we can criticize the Israeli government or you know just their leader without being labeled as an anti-Semite? Can we get there? Because if we are not allowed to criticize Israel, if we can't do that with any country, I mean, if you were going to tell me, you know, Scott, I know you're Italian, so we can't ever criticize Italy. Wait, what? What? I mean, what are we doing? Or it's the Catholic Church. You can't criticize the Catholic Church. Wait, wait, what? No. And so I don't know who to blame this on, Tim. Maybe you have a better, maybe you have a better idea of you know who we can throw this on, you know, this label onto. But for all those folks out there who are calling anybody that is, you know, at least trying to be understanding of the Palestinians' point of view here as anti-Semites, this is ridiculous. I, you know, we need, there, the world has a little bit more nuance than that. No, you're absolutely right, Scott. And and I'm I'm coming from this as, if if the Nazis were to come here, I would be put in a camp. I am quote unquote ethnically Jewish. On my mom's side, my mom was born and raised Jewish. Her great grandparents had numbers on their arms from they were in the camps. And I still think Israel's a problem. We support them no matter what they do. The idea of a, a proportionate response does not exist to them, right? There's, I hate to talk about the West Wing in this scenario because these are the people who love this show are the ones who think that talking poorly about Israel is anti-Semitic. But there's a scene early on in the West Wing where, you know, a plane gets blown up and, and President Bartlett wants to literally like rain thunder. And they have to talk to him about that's a disproportionate response. You have to go with a proportionate response or else you will be laughed at on the world stage. You'll be looked at like a fucking madman. What happened in Gaza is absolutely awful, but it is a terrorist organization. Hamas is a terrorist group. It does not represent every Palestinian, but in, in an inability to recognize that or just honestly, it's not even recognizing. It's not giving a fuck. Netanyahu demolishes buildings and neighborhoods with missile strikes and, and kills thousands of people. If you look at the death toll numbers of Palestinians versus Israelis over like the last 20 years, it's not even close. Tens of thousands of Palestinians die every single year. And there's only been one year where 1,000 Israelites died. And let's not forget the fact that the fucking Palestinians were there first. A bunch of white European and United States 
Westerners decided that we were going to just create a new fucking country again in a place where people already lived and just say, hey, this is Israel now. Sorry, guys. Get the fuck out. And then when they fought over it, we poured a shit ton of money into the military budget of Israel so they'd never lose. And we've continued to pour a shit ton of money into their budget. And you're right, Scott. It's not a left thing. It's not a right thing. It's evangelical Christians. And it's Christians in general. Um, They, they act holier than now when it comes to Jewish people and, and to Israel because they look at them as this... It's, it's their perfect idea of a state if we could just do the same thing with Christianity, right? Like, in their mind, if we could make the United States what Israel is, they're salivating over that because it's it would be a fully Christian nation that follows nothing but Christian ideals because that's what Israel is, right? It is a Jewish state. And so that's why they like it. And I'll say this. Um for anybody, any of our listeners who are of Jewish descent, I understand your anger. I understand your frustration. I understand your fear, your pain. If anybody were to bomb the uh, the Vatican, I mean, I want I would want some people to you know kick some ass and take some names. Yeah, it, it, on an emotional level. Right, uh, but you wouldn't want to bomb a whole city. Right, right, right. It, but see, this is the point. So I understand the emotions behind this. But let's look at some facts, you know, on the ground. And we want to we want to be a show that comes up with facts, right? Number one, people are wanting to blame Biden because he quote gave six billion dollars of taxpayer money to Hamas. No, that never happened. Okay, what happened was is that the Iranians had six billion dollars of assets that were frozen for oil that they had sold to South Korea that through a hostage exchange we've agreed to unfreeze okay that uh, that is not actually in uh, the money is not in the United States it's not in Iran it's it's in a neutral location this was lifted about a month ago and so they haven't even been able to get all 6 billion dollars of it but people want to sit there and say that we funded this attack. No. However, and I'm going to say this, and I said this today in my Substack, the Israelis connected the dots here. So go back to 2017 when our former president was laughing it up with some Russian diplomats in the Oval Office. He gave them some intel. Do you know where everybody knows where this intel comes from? It comes from Israel. goes directly to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is very close friends with Iran. In fact, he's close friends with anybody who is an enemy of the United States. Which, by the way, why are we going buddy buddy with Vladimir Putin? But I'm, but that's not here, here or there. But it is much more likely that the intel that the Israelis gave to Trump, and then Trump gave to Putin, and Putin gave to Iran, probably made it down to Hamas and. There you go. Can connect those dots a lot easier. So before we sit there and say, oh, the old dotting fool in the White House did the wrong thing, maybe he did. You can you certainly can question that. But you know, let's this is the first time where I think that we have seen what Trump has actually done. We can draw a delect line and say we have actual 
negative results. And that, you know, and to me, that's the big thing. Um, but I think this is where you're right. Now, you'd mentioned that you'd, you'd worked from some, with some Palestinians uh, before one of your stops. And to me, listening to, and, and, and uh, my wife had, you know, fellow students that came from Iraq and Iran, and listening to their perspectives was really eye-opening because it's not perspectives that you normally get here in the United States, especially, you know, with our corporate media, you know, doing what they do. Absolutely. And I think you and I both being Catholic and in Texas, I think we were mostly raised in a pro-Israel environment, right? Like I was always taught that Israel is the good guys. Gaza Strip's a terrible place because these crazy terrorists keep trying to destroy Israel. Uh, and then, you know, I had a couple of of my employees who were Palestinian and they went back home for a trip. And I, you know, put my foot in my mouth and said some things about Gaza and, and, you know, it led to an interesting conversation that was eye opening. And then you go and look at the history of that area. And again, we caused this right at Western society just, and, and you can argue that what, what was the best thing to do with, with Jewish refugees at that point, right, Scott? Because I, I don't know what the best option is. I, I still think, um, I mean, we've got a we've got Utah, which is literally a Mormon state. Like, you know, we could have given them a state in the United States would have been an option other than what we did. But I, I, I don't I don't appreciate I'm with you. I don't appreciate people condemning or being okay with war crimes committed against the Palestinian people because of a terrorist group, right? Like would that how would you feel if Proud Boys came in and did some stupid shit, and then you just leveled the whole neighborhood because they that's where they lived. 15 Proud Boys lived in those houses of the 50 that we leveled. We got them. Like, no, that's not how this works, right? Like, there are rules of engagement. We have, as a, as a, a world, we, we sat down. The Geneva Convention was put together of like, Hey, here's here's how you do this legally. Otherwise, you're fucking terrorists. And if you've seen any like if you've been turning a blind eye to this conflict until now, then you might not realize some of the god awful shit that the Israeli military has been doing to the Palestinian people. They've locked them in buildings and set it on fire. They have committed Gen acts of they are literally trying to genocide the Palestinian people, and at this point, Scott, the United States is is co-signing on that genocide. Yeah, and and I don't think we're going to solve. You know, we're not. I thought we're not. I thought. But Jared this could- is what fascist countries do, right? They use they use bad events like this as a way to get away with what they want to do right and if what you want to do is commit genocide okay all you got to do is find a way to spin this as this is this is an appropriate reaction i was going to say i thought jared kushner was going to solve this but you know i guess that didn't happen but uh, you know uh, what they didn't meet his quote they didn't meet they didn't meet they, it's, he's expensive yeah so um 
we're wrapping up here uh, a happy day, at least for Astros fans. Um, certainly want to say congratulations. You know what? A happy day for Rangers yeah. fans too, right? Congratulations to the Rangers. You've uh, you've advanced to your first ALCS. Haven't lost a game yet in the playoffs. To what is it? What was it? 2011. 2011 since their last. Yeah. So it's been a while for them, but hey, you know, welcome back. Welcome and back. And you know what? For me, Scott, if, if the Astros manage to knock on wood, get back to the ALCS. This is a win for me because now I've got a chance to try and see them here locally where uh, my father-in-law's got some connections and we can try and pull some strings. And I got to be honest, once they got to the ALDS, I was, I was pulling for them because I, I like the idea of all Texas ALCS. And I like the idea of trying to get to a game um, and, and taking it in live and, and going into enemy territory in the playoffs sounds really fun. I've only ever been to a playoff game in Minute Maid Park. So, um, I will tip my cap to the Rangers. They shut both of us up. You know, we, we thought they limped into the playoffs and it would be a quick exit against the Rays. Um, well, you know what, here they are. Um, and they, they deserve to be here. So, you know, next week, I hope we're in the same kind of holding pattern where we're talking about a continuing playoff series, but, uh, where can the good folks find you? I'm on Twitter slash X at Tim underscore Costello 10. Uh, you can find the show on Facebook at um, the Snaphook podcast. And I do want to say for any of our listeners that are friends with me on Facebook, Haley is not pregnant. There has been some miscommunication on a photo collection that I posted, posted to celebrate our anniversary. That was the original post when we were announcing Scotty. Haley is not pregnant. Stop congratulating me. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that. Uh, <laughs> saw that on there. And I was like, wow. Dude, even yeah. my doctor, my doctor was like happy for me. Uh, I'm like, why are you? Dude, you're my doctor. Why are you even Facebook friends uh, with me? Well, uh, so I'm, I'm at the Esparzilla on the X and on threads. Uh, you can find my work at Substack, uh, Thoughts of a Native Texan. Um, still hoping I can get Tim on there, you know, kind of add his own section in there. He's um, getting close. He's getting closer. Uh, and uh, But uh, please come to the show page on Facebook, you know, uh, drop us a line. Let us know what you're thinking, uh, what you think of the show. And if you have any ideas for maybe future scumbags or topics. Yeah, heading into the, into the baseball offseason, Scott. Uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to start getting creative again with, with what we talk about. Yeah. Like I said, I hope next week we're in the same kind of holding pattern because that'll be good news. But you know, I'm, I'm going to knock on wood myself and uh, we will see what happens. And either way, we will discuss it here next time on the snap hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and his outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook.